We experienced some issues with our mics in this episode. So apologies for the sound quality not being up to our usual standard. A moment of serendipity in that way is being undocumented in this country is a very um, traumatic and painful experience. And at the same time for me, it helped me, guided me to find my purpose on this earth. I think that I owe finding my path to uh, finding my purpose, which is organizing and, and building movements and building power to bring transformational change to our country. I owe it that to my undocumented experience. Yes. Ecuadorian-born, at 13, she became an undocumented migrant. At 23, she founded United We Dream, the largest youth-led US organization fighting to protect and defend the rights of undocumented immigrants. At 33, she became a MacArthur Fellow. Welcome this week's guest, social justice activist, Cristina Jimenez. In this double-length episode, Cristina recounts the story of her upbringing, being born in Ecuador, her early memories of living through the political and economic turmoil of Ecuador in the 1990s. She describes her father's athleticism and how his mental fortitude stilled resilience and determination, and at an early age, how her mother's empathy became a characteristic she embraced. She reflects growing up with abundance of love and being unaware of the economic challenges her parents faced. Christina discusses arriving in Queens, New York as an undocumented migrant child unable to speak English in the summer of 1998. Early on, she experienced the shame, discrimination and exploitation immigrants encounter, and we discuss the anxiety and fear that exists for immigrants with no status. She discusses the added pressure and racial profiling she experienced following 9-11 and the hatred and discrimination that ensued. Christina sets out how the narrative shifts and changes in the policy and politics of immigration led her to begin her social justice fight. At one hour into the interview, Christina begins to discuss her United We Dream movement and its interconnectedness with other movements like Black Lives Matter. She discusses congressional inaction, detention camps, the lack of progress to create pathways to fix immigration status, and why both parties are responsible for the impasse. She also covers how she and her team's campaigning and public shaming of the Obama administration led Obama to sign the executive order to protect the Dreamers in 2012. We then cover the impact of COVID-19 on the indigenous, black and immigrant communities and why they have been affected more and the negative effects of the pandemic on their communities. She also covers the systems of discrimination. Finally, Christina discusses why her fight is a battle for the soul of the country, her optimism for lasting change, her hopes for undocumented immigrants, her evolving role in the organisation and the future of democracy. Of course, we end with all our quickfire questions. I hope you're uplifted by the vitality, vision, and courage of Christina Jimenez. Let's kick off. Uh, Christina, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Great to be here. It's wonderful to have you as a guest, and I have to give a massive shout out and thank you to the wonderful, delightful uh, Yvonne Moore for recommending you. I love Yvonne. If she asked me to do anything, I'll follow and I'll do it. So when she asked me, I was honored and said yes. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Good. Let's jump in. All our podcasts, we start off with exploring the early life of our guests. And so before we uh, get into your story and your journey into social justice and the organization that you formed in 2008 called United We Dream, we'd like to understand more about your childhood. Now, I believe you were born in Ecuador. 
So I was born in Quito, in Ecuador, in uh, 1998, and I'm the daughter of Fausto Jimenez and Ligia Moreta, and both of them, also from Quito, come from poor and working class families. My dad's side of the family struggled through poverty for most of um, my dad's time in, in Ecuador. He Unfortunately, because of the conditions economically of the country, but also of his family, he actually was homeless for much time of his childhood in the streets of Quito uh, and didn't get to meet his mom until he was 13 um, years old when he reunited as a teenager after living in a home for uh, homeless children that is run by the city of Quito. And my mom comes from a family that also had struggled financially in Ecuador, who had entrepreneurial aspirations. So lots of people in her family have had all kinds of business from Vega grocery stores to to hair and nail parlors and tailoring shops uh, and things like that from families and my, both of my parents who experience uh, difficulty in pursuing their dreams. Both of my parents wanted to go to school and my dad dreamed of being a lawyer. My mom dreamed of being a teacher. Um, and I grew up learning about their experiences as young people, their upbringing, learning about my dad's childhood was definitely very painful to me. And also learning that my mom had dreams of being a teacher, but that her mom, my grandmother, explained to her that women don't go to school and they learn traits instead. My grandmother encouraged my mom to become seamstressed and introduce her to the neighborhood seamstress in Quito, where they lived. And my mom took that as the trade that she invested a lot of her time in while we lived um, in Ecuador. And I always had an abundance of love from dreams and being really loving and supportive parents, always instilling a value around treating other people the way that you want to be treated. You know, my family, obviously, was like many people in Ecuador were raised Catholic and I was raised Catholic as well. I wouldn't say we were a family that was a very religious in that way, but there were certainly values rooted in Christianity of treating other people the same way that you want to be treated, for example, as one of those values. And there was a strong value around education and rooted in their dreams that were unfulfilled for both of my parents. So I will always hear them talk about how I could be the first, I was their first child, so I'm the oldest daughter, and I could be the first one in the family to go to college and to do what I wanted. Though my dad always had a bit of an agenda. He always talked about his dreams of being a lawyer and how um, amazing it would be for me to become a lawyer. So I feel like even as a child, the hearing his dreams and his dreams for me were also what 
planted the seed for me about thinking of law school one day when I was just like an eight-year-old. And I think I I didn't, because there was so much abundance of love, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't feel like I really realized until probably when I was like a, a nine-year-old or an eight-year-old, the value of money or the impact of your socioeconomic status and the first memory I have about realizing uh, the power of money, for example, and what it means when you don't have it, is that I was playing uh, with my cousins one day and one of them asked me, how many days a week do do we get to have beef Mm -hmm. in our home? And in Ecuador, being able to purchase beef for your meals or even chicken is as is a symbol or a reflection of whether you have resources financially to be able to have things like meat as part of your diet. Until they asked me that question, my cousin, I had not thought about, oh, what does it mean to have the money to do that and or don't have the money to do that? And I had not thought about how many days I have uh, meat as part of my meals until that day. And then realizing um, now after that conversation with awareness that we actually didn't have meat every day and that along the years, I remember going from going to the supermarket with my mom or to, uh, to the butcher shop and continuously buying less and less beef and or chicken, given the, the struggling situation financially in, in our family. When my parents found themselves in a country that was going through a coup in the 1990s and lots of companies and employers shutting down because of strikes happening across the country and a lot of poverty, banks took people's savings and closed stores in Ecuador, which I learned later on that led to a massive migration of over 3 million Ecuadorians in the the late 1990s. And My parents were part of uh, that wave of migration that fled the country, seeking a better life and fleeing poverty. For me, like seeing them struggle so much to find jobs like that, even though they were looking for jobs all the time, they just wouldn't find jobs. Some days we had money for food, some days we didn't. And I remember as a child in my school, receiving notices from the school saying, we had not paid tuition. And if we did not pay tuition, I was not going to be allowed to go into the school anymore. And as a, as a young person in elementary school, you feel a lot of shame when you get called out in the middle of your classroom about owning tuition. And that generated a lot of shame for me. But also I became concerned that something was happening in our family that we just couldn't pay for school anymore. And I think that the reality was that my parents were struggling to make ends meet and their dream and their hope that I could go to school started to become less of a reality. Is there no um, state elementary education provided in Ecuador at that time? Yes, there, there are many public schools in the country. And however, it's limited. It's poorly resourced and... I think for families in Ecuador, if you if you wanted a good education for your child, uh, you know, families will 
you know, do everything they could to resource uh, their kids being able to go to private institutions that range from all levels. So I will say private institutions that are affordable for working class folks and also for the very wealthy in the country. And I think that the fear that they could not support the fulfillment of that dream really led my parents to make the very courageous decision, but also very painful and scary decision to leave everything behind and migrate to the United States in 1998. Wow. Before we get into that move, which that change must have been quite a disruption for you at that uh, formative age, what was your worldview like when you were growing up, up, up to the age of 13? When did you become aware of the world beyond just Quito and Ecuador? I will say that as a working class family, we didn't travel a lot outside of Quito. I think that there may have been maybe one one or two trips to Guayaquil because my dad had a, has a sister, one of my aunts lives there. And I think my awareness was really one where I felt very lucky to have both of my parents and to have my siblings and family. And I have on my mom's side of the family, my mom is one of 13 siblings. Wow. <laughs> Big family so, party, son. So, so yeah. A lot of cousins and all kinds of playing dates. And I would say just very fun as, as a child. And but as, as I share, I think that some of the financial struggles really raise awareness for me as to why some families have more and some families have less and why, in, in spite of my parents trying to do everything for their family, they just couldn't find jobs. So I think even as a child, I felt a sense of injustice, but I didn't um, quite have the language yet to explain why those things were happening to my family. And I, we became more aware of opportunities somewhere else. When my parents started having conversations with one of my aunts that had settled in Queens, ah. uh, here in New York. And there was a conversation that if they came to the United States, they'll be able to find work. And I think that I speak for my own immigrant experience, but I think that, I think for most immigrants, when you think about the U.S., you think about the land of the free, opportunity, justice, and those ideals and those values about the country really become a big driver for people to think about migrating to this country. And those were deeply the ideals that my parents believed in when they came here and that we collectively <laughs> believed in when didn't when we didn't we all <laughs> scottish yeah. italian <laughs> we came yeah. here with big dreams and yeah, how times change yes yes i will say that those are the memories and one of the things that right before a few years before my parents and my brother and I decided to migrate. We also, I also had a, a, a sister. You know, she was the second child in our, in our family, but she got sick with cancer. And she was diagnosed when she was six or five years old and gave cancer a big fight for a few years. 
But at the age of eight, we lost her to cancer. And conversations about getting treatments in other countries was part of the conversation with doctors in Ecuador as well. But unfortunately, my sister ended up having a type of cancer at the time, didn't have a promise of being able to be defeated with treatment. And so the option of traveling abroad for treatment ultimately wasn't considered. So I think I will say that conditions around life and survival have, were really the ones that opened my worldview to places beyond uh, the city where I was born. Okay, so before we talk about that, which must have been a, quite a traumatic uh, experience to be uprooted and leaving behind such uh, a broad extended family network, albeit coming to a city where you at least you had an aunt. You're just a reflection on your father. His resilience must have been quite magnificent to have gone through living on this, uh, homeless to age 13 and then to deal with the unemployment, the harsh economic environment in Ecuador, the political upheavals. So he must be a very strong character. He is. He is very, he's a very fun man and very determined to never uh, giving up and continue to chase uh, dreams and ideals and take care of his family. And there's a very fond memory that I have of him. He was uh, also an athlete and became an Olympic boxer. And this obviously happened before he met my mom and they created a family together. That meant that my father always was working out (laughs) and trying to always keep himself in a good, healthy physical condition. So I remember my dad being a very religious runner. Mm-hmm. And he every day will run. And eventually, when I think I was like seven uh, or six, he started taking me with him for long distance running. And I remember uh, running with him under the really hot <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, sun that, you know, that only you get when you're in the middle of the world in Quito, literally, because we are in the middle of the world and there's a particular way in which the sun hits at noon. It's just really hot. And I remember running with him long distance and feeling really tired and saying, I can't, I can't run anymore, dad. My legs are hurting and I'm really young. I'm not like strong like you. I need to stop right now. And I remember him coming to me and saying, don't think about the pain in your legs. Like your body is capable of greater things that your mind would allow you to think about. So um, what don't you try focusing on picturing the ending point, uh, which was the next town over from where we lived. And, and he said, and what don't you just focus on that? And you'll see that the pain in your legs will go away. And let's keep trying. And as many of us know, uh, it is true that your body tends to definitely give you a lot more than what sometimes your mind allows you to imagine. And the first time reaching that end point and realizing that I had forgotten about my pain <laughs> in my legs and that I have made it to the end point 
was truly a life lesson for me. As I grew older, I understood the the resilience and the determination that he was feeling in me in the times that we ran together. Okay, so yeah, the reason I, uh, I, we asked that is really just to understand the influence of both parents, what characteristics in you that were developed by the impact of your mother and the, the role of your father. So it comes across that your determination, your persistence really comes from him. What characteristics do you think were influenced by your mother? I, I credit my mom for raising someone who would always empathize with others. And she was always the one instilling in me to treat my cousins. And I was always with lots of cousins. And kids fight all the time and there is conflict and there's also fun times. But she will always instill in me to treat others with the same love and care that I will want to be treated. And that it's something that I remember being instilled by her young girl you know there was one I remember a story or like a moment where one of the young girls uh, one of our neighbors that uh, joined our play dates with my cousins she was from an indigenous family in Ecuador and like in many Latin American countries uh, there is a lot of racism and discrimination against indigenous people and even though the ironic thing is that all of us have indigenous roots in, in a place like Ecuador in particular. And um, she was getting bullied by some of my male cousins for her indigenous features of her face. And they were calling her names. And I remember her getting really hurt by that and uh, all of a sudden stopped playing and went to sit on a corner of this big backyard that we used to play in. And I remember going to her and giving her a hug and talking to her about how wrong it was of m- what my cousins had said to her and, and then being really upset at my cousins for what they did. And I remember telling um, my mom what happened that afternoon. And she uh, was really proud that I stood up for for her and that I supported her and encouraged me to do that again. And she also told me, wouldn't you want maybe just have a play date with her? Do you want to invite her home and share time together and play together? And I think that the moments like that, and we had various moments like that with my mother, I, I, I credit to her my love for people and my hunger for justice to her and you know how she raised me your dad your dad was probably in the background going should have just given the good left hook or an uppercut oh yeah <laughs> send us yeah. boys packing <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> okay so 1998 you came to new york to queens that upheaval what impact was did that have on you at that time as a 13 year old The experience of migrating is a very traumatic and difficult one. And I think it is important for those of us who 
migrate and have that experience to lift that up and also to lift up that it brings it brings good things and also very painful experiences at the same time and I think that we I, I, I definitely hold the complexity of the good and the bad mm-hmm. because when we landed here there was a lot of sadness profound sadness about not knowing when you will see um, your family members again or whether you will see them There was also a lot of uh, fear about the language and a new place that we just didn't know. And could could you speak English at that time? No. Yeah, so that in itself, coming on a, because I believe you came here on a tourist visa. Yes, we came here on a tourist visa and overstayed the visa. Um, At that point, we became undocumented, but none of us knew the language. And so we know that was going to be a big challenge yeah. to overcome. And it's also just a new place. You don't know a lot of people. We had one family member that uh, was settled here, but beyond that, we didn't have anyone else. And so what were those uh, first few weeks like? It was hot. <laughs> it was the summer. It was 1998. Well, look, that's at least something. Would you imagine if turning up in in the, in the middle of January? Oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just remember the humidity was a killer, and you know I was adjusting to that. And Keith, from being from Quito, we come from a place that has spring-like weather most of the time. Mornings are cold, evenings are cold, uh, but not extreme weather. I will say, like here in the U.S. and humidity was something that (laughs) I remember clearly being just really sweaty even as we were waiting, we were waiting to be picked up from LaGuardia Airport, picked up by my aunt, by my family that was here. And I remember the first thing is that I was expecting people talk about New York, of the tall buildings and Central Park and when I was on the side of the plane that landed in LaGuardia, that the view was was to Queens and not to Manhattan. So I I was really eager to look at the tall buildings and the city that people talked about and in order that you get to see in the movies. And I was shocked not to that and a little bit disappointed. And I kept asking my parents, like, where are the buildings? (laughs) Where are the tall buildings in New York City that people talk about? And so I was a bit like curious and eager um, and disappointed that I had not seen them from the plane. And also when we landed, you know, we were in Queens. Obviously, I didn't know all the differences at the time. Like for me, it was like we got to New York and I was expecting to see the tall buildings. This was, is just one big fairy tale. That was definitely like a very, oh, surprising and, and made me really curious. I'll say that really early on, I started to be shaken by the reality of being in this country and the contradictions of the values or the ideals that, that as immigrants we hear about this country. I remember going to the supermarket and being mistreated because I didn't understand what the cashier was trying to tell me. And so immediately the language barriers were experiences that led to me feeling a lot of shame and discrimination. And similarly with my parents, as they were trying to look for jobs, it was really difficult for them. Like many immigrants, you're like exploring new places and you start realizing really quickly 
that your immigration status is a reason for exploitation and employers wanting to pay people less. And even for things like providing our address or renting an apartment, we couldn't share our information because we were we didn't have immigration status. And there was just like many things that you fear always from the address that you give to the public school to filling out paperwork to rent a place to live. So those were those were the first weeks mm-hmm. here. And that that tourist visa was for six months. At what point in those early days were you able to be enrolled in a school and start to learn English? So I was able to enroll. We landed here in July and my cousins had already been going to school. And so they helped us navigate some of those questions and figuring out how to register for for school. And at the time we provided the address of my aunt who had my uncle and who was uh, the only U.S. citizen in the family at the time. And again, we couldn't provide our address for a lot of fear of what that could create and put a threat of detention or deportation on our family. Mm -hmm. But they helped us navigate that. And I started school in September, which was another shocking experience because I had come from a school that was only for girls in Ecuador. And it's pretty common um, in Ecuador to have uh, a lot of the schools are separated by gender and binary in that way, boys and girls. And I was coming to a school that was mixed and that was a public school. It was a very large school too. It was like 700 students in my class. And it was really shocking (laughs) to go into a very large building to see police officers in the school. I never associated seeing police in school, which was also really scary because I always thought, are they going to ask me for my immigration status? And also the language, right? I, I didn't know English. I felt, even though there was a lot of students of color in my school, it was, the school was in a neighborhood that was, that is really diverse. A lot of children of immigrants, Black people, uh, Chinese, Bengali, Mexican and Colombian and Dominican and most students spoke in English and I felt really isolated in that way and I remember my first week I had gym like I think I had it like once a week and I that was a new thing to me in terms of having your gym class that was at a field so the school did not hold its physical ed classes within the building but in a field that was a couple of blocks away from the school. First, I got lost uh, in trying to get to the field. Then I made it, finally. And I didn't know about such thing as lockers. But my cousin had prepared me a little bit for it. And my sneakers were stolen from my locker that day. And I ended up having to figure out a way to get walk back home without shoes to get a pair of shoes and then go back to school. And I heard from another girl uh, who spoke in Spanish and she told me, you don't speak English. And I said, no. And she said, oh, I'm really sorry about your shoes, but that's what they do to a lot of the new immigrant kids. That was a shocking welcoming to public education Mm -hmm. in the United States. (laughs) And I, I, I definitely have to say that for the first few months, I was really afraid. 
in this school environment that I was in. There must have been a constant anxiety as well about your immigration status, dealing with that. That's always a cloud over Mm. your head. Mm. When you are an immigrant and you don't have immigration status, definitely you always start thinking about, is this the time that a teacher is going to ask me? Is this the time that the police officer inside the school is going to ask me? And it's something that you hold really close to your chest Mm -hmm. because you can't reveal it to people. What was that once your, your parents sort of passed that six-month six period and you remained, you became aware of your status and the situation you were in? How was school as you sort of went through that, what we call in the UK secondary education, but here obviously to 12th grade? I, I always knew that our family didn't have immigration status and that at some point that year after we have landed the visa will expire and that will mean that we couldn't go back and that we were going to be living in uncertainty for when things could you know change about our immigration status. I think what I didn't know or understand that time was the implications of what that meant, the the very direct implications in in your life. Certainly, I lived it through my parents a lot because as undocumented workers, it was difficult for them to find jobs. And then when they found it, they experienced exploitation. My dad, one of his first jobs was as a car washer on Queens Boulevard. (laughs) And, And one of those car washes in that big boulevard in Queens and the owner was Italian-American, and he had many employees like my dad who were recently arrived um, immigrants that didn't have immigration status, and he refused to pay them often. Unbelievable exploitation. And I believe I remember that they paid him like maybe $4 an hour, And, and one time my dad asked me, you know, a few months had gone by and I was one, like I was the one in the family that because of school, I had learned some English, like I wasn't fully proficient yet, but I could navigate conversations. And he asked me for my help talking to his employer about him not getting paid and asking for his wages. And the man was really rude and very aggressively told me, All of these workers, like they know that they're not supposed to work and they still want to work for me. And if you don't like it, he could leave. And he didn't, Uh and he wouldn't pay him? And he wouldn't pay. It will be, the the pay will be inconsistent. So some weeks he will get paid, some weeks he wouldn't get paid. Eventually, after my dad was able to find something else, he moved on. But having the experience of confronting an employer that is exploiting your your dad mm-hmm. and you're a 14 year old trying to have this conversation with an adult it's really scary and also when he refused that left me feeling really powerless yeah. because it's not like i could call someone to help us was i gonna call the department of labor or like i couldn't engage any government 
and or any authority uh, mm -hmm. because of the fear that this could be a possibility of putting my parents and my own family, my whole family, at the risk of deportation. I had not experienced that directly in that way, but my dad and my mom experienced many situations like that. And I would experience them indirectly through them. Uh, and sometimes me being the, the, the person talking to these employers and just feeling the impact of the injustice in, in my body and just feeling so powerless about it. I think that the, the, I knew that that documented status will lead to that, to situations like that. I also knew that because of the color of our skin, we will experience racial profiling. And this will happen many times when we will be stopped in the street. My dad was stopped by the cops many times. My brother, as a 12-year-old, was a stop and frisk in our neighborhood of Jackson Heights. For being a young, brown man, walking in the street and therefore being suspicious of something. And, and that must be tough as well, going through... And I know 9-11 as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, I, will, I, I have very, very clear, vivid memories of what 9-11 did to our communities and to my family. Because that fear of deportation and of police and feeling the systematic racism, it was a real life. It was a real thing for us every day of our lives. But also when 9-11 happens, like you, we went through this period of, the government empowers the police to basically search anyone on the street who looks suspicious. And I remember going to bus stops and subway stations, and you see a lot of NYPD officers holding their weapons in a very visible way, and they could search anyone. And there were weeks where all of our family talk amongst each other and like we need to avoid the trains because if we go to take public transportation, we could be stopped and searched and asked about our immigration status. So the level of fear and the level of hate also that we witness as New Yorkers, I can't speak for the rest of the country, but in New York City, most of people were getting attacked in the street violently after 9-11. And the rhetoric in the media from President George Bush at the time was that all of us as immigrants and people of color were, and particularly immigrants, were, were suspicious of being terrorists. And, and that, became, that became the narrative and um, that just exacerbated the level of fear that many of our families uh, went through. And I imagine much worse for Muslim families who were also in, at the center of, of a lot of hatred and attacks and, and discrimination. And one of the things that for me was a, a, a defining moment for how I ended up organizing and entering work uh, for social justice is that when I, was in, when I was just graduating high school and entering into college, 9-11 happened and the administration created programs like the special registration program for Muslims, where Muslim men um, of a certain age had to gone through had to go through a special registration program with the government, and that led to 
a young man from Morocco, whose name is Kamal, to be put in deportation proceedings. And like me, he had come with his family very young, grown up in the U.S., had graduated college, was actually entering law school, and he gets now an order of deportation because of the special registration program targeted for Muslims uh, after 9-11. And that was one of what that was one of the national campaigns that I joined to fight against his deportation case and to organize and advocate for him to be able to stay here. Kamal is still here. He now has fixed his immigration status, but I share that story because I think it's important to make the connection between the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and how that had deep ramifications and implications for immigrant communities and the way in which the systems of immigration and policies of immigration and national security policy criminalizes immigrants, not only Muslim communities, but all immigrants. And later on learning how post 9-11, there's the growth of uh, detention of incarceration of immigrants and the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, which did not uh, exist before that. And the decision to to put immigration and immigrants as an as a matter of national security and the, the under the Department of Homeland Security are tremendous shifts in the policy and the politics of immigration that were defining and impacting my life in very direct ways. So when you were at this, you were, as you say, you were transitioning from school to college. And I've heard also that you face challenges by, because of your status, not getting into college and you had supportive teachers. Were you at that point still considering a path to law or were you thinking, no, I've got to take action myself. I've got to take matters into my own hands. And this, there's a growing seed of social justice growing inside you. Where was your head at that point? I, when I was in 11th grade and all of my friends had started applying for college and especially many, many students in the honors program, which I was part of, were applying to all these Ivy League schools and, and then understanding that I couldn't apply, mm-hmm. uh, not because I didn't have the profile of a student to apply, but because of my immigration status. But then that wasn't enough in terms of realizing what it meant for me to not have immigration status when I spoke to a counselor and she told me that because of my immigration status, I couldn't go to school, period. I couldn't go to college. And that was really air shattering for me. Because for me, that, that was one of the biggest reasons my parents came to this country in the first place. And all of their sacrifices and enduring work exploitation and enduring navigating a country that it's new with a new language and all of the experiences around discrimination that we had gone through here to then end up not being able to go to college was it was an air shattering moment and this is where again people like my mom have such a huge impact in my life because it was my mother who encouraged me not to give up and to go back to the school and figure out a way in which I could talk to another teacher to get some help. But I remember feeling just so defeated and crying and telling my mother, I will not be able to go to school. This is it. Like the dreams stop here. And she said, there's no way I'm going to allow you to get 
to give up. And if you don't go to school yourself and get another teacher to help you, you know, I'm going to go there myself and I'll speak to the principal and I'll speak to other teachers. And I just remember the fear of a teenager of having your mom going to school and shame you uh, in that way. I said, no, mom, like, it's okay. I'm going to try to figure out. You don't need to go. You don't need to go to school. She was very smart in that way. She gave me a no choice moment. And it was through another teacher that I figured out a way to apply to public school at the City University of New York, regardless of my immigration status. And interestingly, at that time, there was also movement in the state legislature to pass legislation to allow students like me to pay in-state tuition rates. Because for people like me at the time, what he meant is that as people without immigration status, we had to pay tripled uh, what the state tuition was, even though we've lived all of our lives or a major part of our lives and graduated from schools in the state. And that makes it so that you can afford it because those were international student rates as Mm -hmm. they know them in the higher education system. And That was the biggest door opening for me because I was trying to figure out a way that I could go to school. And somehow I connected with organizations that were fighting for this bill, for this tuition bill for immigrant students in the state. And this is when I learned that there are other young people like me who are sharing their stories, who are fighting, uh, who are advocating to the state for this law. And I said, oh, they're like me. I need to do something. Like I, I, could also take, I could also take action. And that became, that became the entry point for me to not really knowing what advocacy was or organizing was because I didn't really know. I had not had any formal training in a school. You learn about the civil rights movement, but not in the context of these this was a social movement and they yeah. were organizing their communities. You're not exactly handed a toolkit and said, here, not at all. And so I was really intrigued by it, but also have fears about it. And I remember in a few events that were, that were run to advocate for students like me, other advocates and organizers were asking me, would you be open to sharing your story? And I would just be so terrified about it. And even the first time I did it, I, I shared my story with a fake name and I used Sandra as my fake name. And I used it because that was a way where I felt I, I want to take action and I want to create change. And if this is going to help, I want to do it for my family and for me. And also, I don't want to put my family and myself at risk of deportation. Mm-hmm. For many years, I used that fake name publicly to share my story and to advocate for immigrants and for people like me and and my family. And I will say that then the law school idea, even though I joined political science in college and I focus on one of the tracks of political science included uh, a very specific track on law and I follow that. The goal was still for me to try to make it to law school. But over time, as I became involved in organizing. And I got to experience fighting against deportations and seeing how many people were deported even though we fought for them and led campaigns. And also many people got to stay, including my, my partner, Walter, who were, we were friends at the time. 
he was also in deportation proceedings and he was going to be deported. And we led a campaign to keep him here. And all of those empowering experiences of losing the shame about being undocumented, losing the fear about being undocumented, but also realizing that if we were to take action together with other people, that we could save people from deportation, where moments that gave me a taste of what community power and organizing could do in this country. And the idea of going to law school became less of a goal over time. And when I was getting closer to graduating and having to make decisions about what to do next, I realized that I couldn't go to law school. It was going to be too expensive. Undocumented students at the time were some schools were open to accepting students, others won't. So how you will get paid for it was still very uncertain because you weren't eligible for support or scholarships. And I felt that instead of trying to push my way into law school, that Just I needed to change fight a lot. for my life. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I needed to fight for my life and the life of my communities and to change yeah. the system that was... Um, oppressing our communities. Brilliant. So that point around 2008 with Walter going through that sort of deportation process and your campaigning firm, what was it that made you suddenly say, you know what, I'm going to create my own organization. I'm going to create my own social impact organization. Mm -hmm. I am going to commit myself to building a community, creating campaigns, creating social act, uh, social activism, and advocacy to address the undocumented injustice, the injustice of the way the undocumented are treated in this country. Tell us about that point, that moment that you said, I, I need to take action. I wouldn't say that the idea of creating an organization was the first thing that came to my mind. It was really, it was really me taking steps of action for survival and for protection of my community. And when I joined these deportation campaigns, mm -hmm. fighting for Walter's deportation, I think fighting for Marie Gonzalez's deportation or Kamal's, all of that, I think were moments where my, my commitment got strengthened over time as I got to meet more and more people that were being impacted by the injustices of, of the, the system that had been designed to criminalize immigrants and to go after immigrants in this way. And as I met more people and more families, some of them who had already lost their family members to deportation, it became more important for me to make sure that people in our communities didn't have to go through what, what, what Walton went through. Mm. Of a very scary moment, he was in an Amtrak train at three in the morning, he was stopped uh, by border patrol agents and on a, with a flashlight, aiming his face, being asked about his citizenship. And that led him to be in jail for, for five days. And that led to our organizing to get him free and release from detention. Moments like that for me, made my commitment uh, even deeper and stronger for organizing 
And the idea of creating an organization evolve collectively with other undocumented young people over time. Many of us had got had an opportunity to meet one another in different advocacy efforts. So there were young undocumented people uh, fighting for their states to allow them to go to college in Massachusetts and other states. People were fighting for driver's licenses like in Texas and in California and, and in Florida. And we were all going through uh, unique experiences, but also same experiences uh, being undocumented immigrants in this country. And when we came together, we decided to focus on passing the DREAM Act federally. Like that was the goal. We needed to change the law at the federal level that would allow undocumented young people like us to go to school, get a pathway to citizenship, be protected from deportation. And it was doing this work in a very informal way. All of us, like in our volunteer time, joining phone calls and um, talking to members of Congress and sharing our stories with the media. And we used to have at the time, like national action days where we will have like mock graduations and sharing our stories as undocumented young people and really posing the moral question to this country about who gets to be treated like an American. Like what does it mean to be an American and who is an American and who gets to define that? And all of that work led to eventually us feeling, number one, exhausted that every congressional session. You know, the DREAM Act was introduced in 2001. Many of us were involved in trying to push members of Congress to pass the DREAM Act since the early 2000s. It has not passed Congress yet. So this is more 10 years plus in the making. And every legislative session, we will finish so exhausted that we, in our minds, did everything we could, share our stories, call members of Congress, speak to the media, and get ourselves organized. And we just wouldn't be able to move things forward. So as, our, as we are getting more politicized by this experience and how democracy works and it doesn't work and how we could, and how we could build the power needed to create change, we decided to create a space for young people where we wouldn't just focus on the legislative sessions. That we wanted to create a space where people like us could find community, could find a place of safety where they could share their stories and their struggles and get support, but also to shed the fear that we as undocumented people live with and to move from that fear to empowerment and to take action. And, and that's when in 2008, we decided to uh, create United We Dream together so just to explain as i understand it your strategy for the for united we dream you you have what you call dream it power it make it feel it which seems to be a combination of knowledge and resources leadership building tactics and strategies action taking or taking action sort of direction and resources and then whole community around sustainability and helping people deal with the anxiety and mental health and staying fit and building resilience and maintaining that energy, as you said, that you felt sort of often depleted. That's something you built over the last 
12 years to a, a place where you've now, I believe, got 700,000 members, over 100 different active groups in 20 plus states around the country and having huge impact. But for people that don't understand, the people that listen to this, who aren't Americans, that don't understand the illogical approach that senators and congressmen have to this, Democrats even, that voted this down and voted the bill down in 2010. Could you just explain? Because right? everyone that's not American, looks at America, thinks well, it's a country built on immigration and built by immigrants. Why are the, why is there still, why was a resistance in 2010 to it by these Democrats? Why is it still not passed? And, and then maybe you just tell us about how you managed to get in front of Obama and give him a bit of a kick up the ass and say you need to take executive action and protect the dreamers. You know, I will say that the, it's not just illogical. It is just and illogical. It is just and also rooted in white supremacy in this Mm -hmm. country and racism. And I think that that's something really uh, important to highlight in the conversation that particularly in the context of now people, people in this country, people have been the ones that have created the policies and the systems and the institutions that we have in place. And I also believe that it is people that are challenging how these institutions and these policies and the systems have been developed because by design, the policies and many institutions in this country and many systems in this country are rooted in a very dark history of slavery, of black people and anti-blackness and white supremacy. And when we root ourselves in that and remember the history Mm. of this country that benefited from slavery, that policies and, and systems, the Jim Crow laws that we had in place, there is history in this country of definitely exploiting and discriminating against in a systematic way against black people, which I will say the policies and the institutions that were built to target Black people in that way have expanded also to cover other people of color. And that has included immigrants from certainly immigrants of color Mm -hmm. in this country. And I think that's an important context to understand why we have the immigration system that we have and the policies on immigration that we have. And the irony that this land, it's, it's, it was land of uh, native indigenous people to this land. And that there, the history of this country also includes the genocide of those indigenous communities along with slavery. So when we look, we have this exercise at United We Dream, a workshop to understand immigration history. Mm-hmm. And we look at how many of the policies that ha- were used to discriminate against black people were also used to discriminate against discriminate against immigrants in the southwest you wouldn't just have signs for black and whites only you also had signs for only whites allowed not blacks and not mexicans allowed you also had programs and policies that were passed 
targeting indigenous people when they were put in, in camps and separated from their families and removed from their lands. And similar policies that were applied to Japanese Americans when the internment camps yeah. were created. And so what and the policies like today under this administration where families are being put in detention camps and kids are put in cages and separated from their mothers and their fathers. And you look back at the internment camps, you see the connection and the history and the tradition in this country around treatment and abuse and state violence against people of color, black people, immigrants, and in immigrant communities, black immigrants burn the brunt of the intersection of many of those systems are they are, as they are disproportionately impacted by racial profiling, by detention, and by deportation. I think that it, for us as an organization and for me as a movement leader and as an organizer, it's been important to understand our history as a country and to understand why we have the systems and the policies that we have in place that have aimed to target Black people and that have expanded now to target other groups of communities of color, which is why our, our members at United We Dream across the country have uh, been going through this very powerful moment of joining um, the Movement for Black Lives in demanding the stop to uh, racism and to police violence and to defund the police because we live the interconnectedness yeah. of all of those policies having uh, an impact on our lives. In fact, local police works actively with ICE agents to target families for deportation and detention. If there wasn't for them working together, you couldn't deport as many people as were deported in the era of Obama when you know Obama deported a historic number of people, over 3 million people that were deported under his administration. And then this machine that has been built by Democrats and Republicans in the name of fighting terrorism after 9-11 gets to be so bloated up that now it's the largest enforcement agency in the whole country. And it has much more money than the CIA, much more money than the FBI, much more money than FEMA. And we have bloated up this agency to target black, brown immigrants um, across the country. And this has happened by the actions of both parties mm -hmm. in this country. When I think about all of the moments of congressional inaction mm -hmm. and absence of leadership in taking action on this issue, we have seen as an approach to continue to deport people, criminalize people, continue to build detention camps that are for profit, that are giving profits to the same companies that own many jails across the country, and, and no action on providing legislation or policies that are creating pathways for undocumented people to fix their immigration status, to get on a pathway to citizenship. And the victory of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which came really on the, on the foundation of years of movement building that we did, comes out of us pressuring the Obama administration to stop deportations and to stop this deportation machine that was putting our communities and that continues to put our communities under so much pain mm -hmm. in the country. And the 
I think what's important is that as we were pushing for the DREAM Act, it's important to mention that as we were pushing for the DREAM Act in Congress, because we've always known that only Congress can provide a permanent solution to this policy issue. And they refused to pass the DREAM Act. We had a historical vote in 2010 when the House of Representatives at the time led by Speaker Pelosi Mm -hmm. passed the DREAM Act by a majority. And in the Senate, that is where we see many challenges, not only on immigration, but healthcare and climate change and anti-corruption policy on many issues. In the Senate, we lost this vote by five votes. Those votes included Democrats, moderate Democrats that refused to vote in our favor. And it's really, for me, not so much of a party politics because both parties are responsible for where we are in the state of immigration politics in this moment. And it has enabled the Trump administration to get as far as he has gone to now Mm -hmm. under his administration. But at the time of Obama, it was because the DREAM Act had built such a huge amount of support. We had gone from less than 40% public support for the DREAM Act to over 50% of the population feeling very supportive about this piece of legislation. It fails in Congress. And then the next question for us as organizers and people impacted by these policies was, what do we do next? If we continue to push Congress, we don't see a way forward because we're going to get stuck in the Senate again. But President Obama ran his whole campaign on on a pro-immigrant rhetoric and committing to immigrant communities and to Latinx communities that he will make immigration reform and issues like the DREAM Act key priority of his administration. So knowing that, we shifted our focus. We made a strategic choice to shift our focus to President Obama and asking him to use his executive authority to stop the deportations of immigrant youth. And we led a two-year campaign called the Right to Dream campaign, exposing how the agency of immigration enforcement was going after young people and their families through deportation. We exposed uh, the cases with the Secretary Napolitano at the time and with Obama himself who quite frankly refused to accept that his administration was leading a record number of deportations at the time. And it was our public shaming and exposing of his administration that were the, you know, some of the factors that pushed him to accept that in fact, his Department of Homeland Security was deporting young people. And, and you know, at the beginning, the Obama administration said, We cannot take any action. We cannot address uh, what you are demanding and what you're advocating for. And they kept saying the the White House legal counsel said that this was not possible. And we said we have a group of the the, the most regarded legal experts on constitutional uh, powers, presidential powers, and also immigration policy who are telling you and telling us that you can do it. And our entire campaign became about pressuring him publicly through civil disobedience, through rallies and marches and many actions outside of the White House and following Obama everywhere he went to remind him that he could do this, that led him to take action, quite frankly, because he was also in re-election for mm-hmm. his second mm-hmm. term. So this is how politics plays such a big game here. And as he was going into re-election, 
Senator Rubio from Florida comes out publicly saying, I want to help um, these youth and I want to introduce legislation in Congress and it will be bipartisan uh, and Republicans will get the victory of this policy. And, oh, we're not going to allow that to happen. And that was another uh, factor of putting pressure on President Obama to do something. You know, it became a matter of political gain. And who was going to get the political gain of that? The question was for Obama, would you let Republicans take that? And to Republicans is, would you let Democrats take that? And Obama being the leader of the party and in the midst of a re-election comes forward and says, all of a sudden, I've talked with legal counsel in the White House and, and we are going to do this. And that was because of the, unrel- the relentless pressure that he received from young immigrants themselves that pushed him to take action. Wow. Uh, and then uh, eight year, or four years later, the administration changes. So from that moment, that must have been one of the great moments of elation in your life to see him take that action, to then see the change in the administration and the fear and the anxiety set in of what might then happen under this new administration. You've continued your battle and your enduring work, and you must have been exceptionally also elated with the decision by the Supreme Court to side with you. So perhaps you could maybe just reflect on that and what, and where you see things moving forward. We've talked about the, the broader community you're a part of. We're also, you're also on the right side of history, let's face it. We know that by 2040, the majority of people in this country will not be white. And although the institutions still need to be changed, there will be systemic change happen. It's just about, it's quite a question of when. So I'd love you to just reflect on where we are in this moment now of heightened tension, where justice you think may emerge and when, and also maybe just talk about your position, because I believe that you're just just stepping aside from your executive lead of the organization you set up. We are in a moment of deep pain and reckoning in this country about the soul of this country. And we're also in a moment, in an extraordinary moment of hope, I believe. And the deep pain and reckoning that we're going through, it it is a conversation about race and racism and white supremacy in this country that you and all of us are experiencing not just through policing or state violence through police or detentions and deportations with immigrant communities, but also through what's happening with COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is no surprise that indigenous communities, black communities, and brown communities, uh, and immigrant communities are disproportionately impacted by far in every single state across the country. Mm-hmm. It happened here in New York, where I live where the majority of people dying from COVID are Latinos and Blacks and immigrants. And what we are seeing is the exposing of systems that are working by design to discriminate 
against certain communities. Because the same communities that are very vulnerable and deeply impacted by COVID right now were the, are the communities that were very vulnerable before COVID. The same communities that are hard to count for census, the same communities that didn't have access to healthcare before COVID. And where I grew up in Jackson Heights, Elmhurst Hospital became the first yes. epicenter of the epicenter in New York and the country for the months of March and April. And I wasn't surprised that that happened because Elmhurst Hospital is the only hospital for more than five neighborhoods in Queens for millions of people, most of them working class immigrants. Something ironic as well, that's where Trump grew up. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> where Trump grew up and he didn't really care, really Sorry. lack of leadership on, on the response to COVID. And this hospital was overwhelmed and unable to serve the community in an adequate way before COVID. So when COVID hits and you're dealing with a lot of working class people that work in service industry, whether that's restaurants or deliveries or shopping and retail or taxi drivers, it was no surprise that they were the hospital that had no beds for people, no ventilators for people to the point that people were dying in chairs in the hospital. And I have friends of friends um, that are doctors in Amherst Hospital who um, named that they will never recover from the trauma of that experience that they describe as a work-like zone, a war-like zone in Amherst Hospital. So I, I share that, one, because it's close to me because it's my community, but also because it exposed the lack of healthcare, education, and resources that are provided for communities of color. While at the same time, you've seen a huge increase of billions and billions of dollars to build a very robust deportation machine and becoming the largest enforcement agency in the entire country. And while you've seen the budgets of police departments growing and growing exponentially, only New York City's budget is $7 billion for policing. I think that gives us a, a sense of where the resources are going, how policies have been shaped. And this pandemic, this global pandemic, is exposing the injustices um, of our policies and how rooted in, in violence and discrimination against communities they are. And at the same time, we are seeing an uprising of led by Black people, and followed and supported by many allies in our communities that are saying enough is enough and we need radical change and radical transformation. And that means having conversations about policies and systems that are impacting our communities like policing, like deportation, like detention. And what we're also seeing is decisions like the ones from the Supreme Court not only standing on the right side of history with LGBTQ people and protecting their employment rights, but also with the DACA case, siding with DACA recipients and protecting them from this administration. What I will say is that regardless of the fact that people know that the decision of the Supreme Court is not going to fully protect us, yeah. the, the courts are not fully going to protect people. And we know that ultimately this is a battle for the country, the soul of this country. 
And it's, it's a political battle. And, and it's a cultural battle too, as we have demographic shifts and conversation about people of color becoming majorities in more and more states across the country. And the uncomfortableness about the questions of who holds power in our society, in our institutions. But regardless, regardless of all of that, young people in our movements and in our communities know that this election and the need to use elections to create change is so necessary. Because as long as you have people like Donald Trump in office and people who support his agenda, our communities and our democracy are not going to be safe. Mm-hmm. And so what brings me a lot of hope is the anger, but also the, the commitment and the persistence that a new world is possible, that we can change and bring transformational change to our communities and that protesting and taking action together and demanding for what we deserve as people, as humans, will create change. And we're seeing that change across the country as we're seeing conversations about investing more in communities, divesting from policing. Also, as we are seeing, even in the context of immigration, many states taking action to provide resources to immigrant families that have been impacted by COVID. And we know that we could also take action through the election. Right now, we're actually in the midst of recruiting hundreds of young people across the country who, whether or not they have the right to vote, are joining our um, Here to Stay campaign to mobilize voters to the polls in this consequential election and make sure that we bring accountability to the systems and to the people that hold power in shaping those systems. Well, it's a very exciting time. So... What's your, before we get into, because I'm conscious of time, um, before we get into quick hard questions, where are you going to be? What do you want to focus on once you step away from this role? Where do you see yourself over the next five, 10 years? I'm stepping away from my role as an organizer and executive director because that's what organizers do. We're developing people and empowering people in our communities to create leaderful movements where there's just not one leader, but many leaders. And I'm really proud that we are at a place now where new leadership will take the organization to this next chapter of movement building and transformation in our communities. I am very content and satisfied and inspired, very humble by everything that we've been able to achieve under my leadership in the organization. Having an organization that is now Uh, present across 28 states and having almost a million members across the country, it speaks to the power that undocumented communities are building. And the victories that we've seen in the courts, the victories that we've seen across the country are a testament to the power of people coming together and taking action. And that people closest to the pain are closest to the solution, always. Um, And you've seen that time after time working out. And for me, I see this as a stepping away from a role, but not stepping away from the movement that I feel very committed to. So I will continue to build power and create change and transformation in communities towards a vision of this country that works for all of us and that and that provides so that everyone in this country can live with dignity, regardless of our race, regardless of our gender, 
uh, our background or immigration status and where we can all you know accomplish our dreams and, and thrive so i know that i will have a different role in this movement not uh, clear yet what that next role will be but it feels really clear to me that i will continue to do this work and i'm very devoted to it and for this year what i have upcoming is i'm working on a book that will probably be published next year and i'll also be working in this election because it's so consequential so I will continue to support United We Dream by leading our electoral strategy work and we'll see what, what's next. But I continue to just look forward to being uh, in support and part of this movement in a different role. Okay. Just before we get into the quick for questions, I, we didn't really touch on serendipity and where what have been the most, where serendipity impacted the journey you've been on? Is there any uh, moment or experience or encounter you would, could recount? I will say that a moment of serendipity in that way is just like the being undocumented in this country is a very traumatic and painful experience. And at the same time for me, it helped me and guided me to find my purpose on this earth. And I, you know, I thought I would be a lawyer one day. My parents are still asked about me going to law school. <laughs> but I think that I owe finding my path to uh, finding my purpose, which is organizing and, and building movements and building power to bring transformational change to our country. I owe it that to my undocumented experience. Yeah, so and, yeah. And, uh, and I would not had this commitment or arrive at this commitment if it had not been for Walter's detention uh, and threat yeah. of deportation. Because as I was sharing with you earlier, I was very curious about this advocacy work that I didn't really understand at the time. But I was also very skeptical <laughs> that I wasn't sure if it worked. I wasn't sure if it was worth my time or, or if it will lead me to too much risk of deportation. And, but it was when, when he was detained and the anxiety and the stress and the fear and the desperation that he could be deported anytime and that this was a friend of mine that I really care for and so close to my life that that was not only an experience of empowerment because we were all we were able to get him out but it was also for me a realization that I didn't want other people to go through what I was feeling when he was detained and to what he went through when he was in jail not knowing that he could be deported anytime and that created that deep commitment for me and was one of those moments of a very difficult moment that ended up actually guiding me into my path to finding my purpose and feeling so realized about everything that we've built through this organization and our movement. Okay, perfect. That's a great explanation. Okay, quick for our questions. What principles do you stand by? Justice and love. Lovely combination. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time but did turn out to be the right decision? 
And you might have just answered, might have answered it at birth, Walter. So many. <laughs> you know, I feel like so many choices about whether to, you know, stay in this work or explore this work a little bit more and giving it a chance. And I think that Walter's detention was really shaping in that way. And I have no regret deciding to devote my life to this. I also think that decisions that I make collectively with the leaders of United We Dream on pushing Obama, for example, was a tough choice, very unconventional against the establishment of the advocacy world, against the democratic establishment, against many conventional, much of conventional wisdom. And um, you look back and that it was the right thing to do. And even in the way that we've approached this administration, not allowing them to use the pain of young people or DACA recipients as a bargaining chip to build the wall, which he tried to do many times since 2017, where he kept saying, I want to protect uh, young people, but only if you give me billions of dollars to build a wall, or I want to protect the young people only if you allow me to eradicate our legal immigration system. All of these things, trying to use us as bargaining chips and as being really clear, even in the face of deportation, and in the face of a clearly white nationalist president and administration saying that we will not allow them to use us as bargaining chips. And making those decisions have not been easy. They've been difficult along the journey, but they all have been right. And they have been part of the elements of building a really powerful movement that has already made history in this country. Okay. Where do you go to discover new ideas? I love books. <laughs> Reading allows me to imagine, to transform myself to a different reality, to be creative. Um, talking to people, I'm a very extrovert person. I get energy from being with people and don't enjoy really having debates within myself or in my head and just talking to a lot of people and giving people a lot of the benefit of the doubt. I've talked to all kinds of people who agree with me, people who disagree with me, and I'm always thinking about are there bridges here or are there, are there new ideas or innovations here? And most importantly, as an organizer, it's always going back to the members of United We Dream, the young people and the families that are living through the difficulties and the pain of these policies that we have in place. And I always, the, the biggest takeaway from my experience at United We Dream is that even in the moments of most and deepest uncertainty, people who are living injustice themselves are the ones that have the answers to how to move forward. And the clarity about the answers and the path forward comes from people and people who are directly impacted. So that for me has always been a source of creativity and inspiration. We ask the question, what's the one problem worth solving? Now, obviously, DACA and having this finally, a final solution to this uh, is one big problem. But is there any other larger problem you believe needs to be solved? I think that beyond this country, what we see is that the, the movement of people is a global phenomenon and a global problem. The United Nations estimates that trillions of people will have to move in the next 20 years because of climate change. 
And climate change is just one factor. Poverty and economic uh, inequality, it's another factor that is pushing people out of their home countries. And I believe in my heart that we can come up with a solution to this problem together if we were to really think about not only accepting the fact that globalization and climate change and other factors are leading to this global phenomenon, but also that immigrants are experiencing the same discrimination and attacks in other countries, sometimes even worse, like in the United States. Yeah, and then Europe and all around the world. Absolutely. I mean, you see this in Spain with people from Morocco. You see this in Europe with people from Africa uh, Mm. and other countries. You see this in Australia. You see this all over the world. Just last year, I met undocumented young people in Ireland who come from different African and Asian countries, and they're facing the same challenges. The countries could be different, but the impact of injustice, exploitation, and discrimination against immigrants, it's happening all around the world. And I, I have hope that we can think about better solutions than building walls across the world, like what we're thinking about now. That's something that uh, I will continue to dream about. Okay. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? My partner has played a big role in that, Walter. I also feel like my family is always a regrounding force. This work can really take away your attention of the priorities about your life, family and relationships. And my mom and my dad have been big reminders of the importance of family and you know relationships outside of the movement work and the movement relationships that I hold so dear to my heart as well. So they, they drive interventions on me. Is there any question uh, you wish people would ask you that they never do? I wish people would ask me more about what it takes and what it means to be a woman in um, a leadership role and doing this work. And though I see, I'm experiencing a little bit more of that these days, but it's usually not something that I get asked in a lot of conversations. So. Maybe the next podcast that interviews you, does the research, hears that, and then asks you the question. There you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Impossible question. You've taken on what many would have said to have been an impossible task and, is, and you're making it possible. But what would your advice be to someone that might be going to school that's got a dream and ambition that's being told, forget it, that's impossible? Don't let anyone tell you no. Straight to the point. Okay. <laughs> okay, we're going to finish with just a couple of quick and lighter questions. What's your go-to karaoke song? Sorry, can you say what's your What's your go-to karaoke song? Oh, my go-to karaoke song. It has to be Bon Jovi's, what is it? Uh, prayer, or Living by a Prayer? Living, living on a Prayer, yeah. Living on a Prayer, there you go. Okay. I've been saying this for the last few weeks, hoping that Bettina would actually do it. We want to create a Spotify playlist of all our guests' karaoke songs. It might be me that sets it up, so I'll let you know when, when it's oh, added. I look forward to that. <laughs> During the lockdown, 
you must have had some chance to see some interesting Netflix, Amazon or Apple documentaries, movies, anything you would recommend people watch? When They See Us. When They See Us by Eva DuVernay. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Central that one. Park five. Yeah. About okay. the Central Park Five. Yeah. 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 You talked about your love of reading. Uh, take the last question. What book would you like us to offer the listeners that come up with the best comments on Instagram or on the website? Mm. I have it right here, actually. Given that your book is not yet published. It's uh, A House of My Own by Sandra Cisneros. Okay. I don't know if you see it with the background thing. It's yeah. Missing up. But yeah, that's the book that I would recommend. Sandra just has this very poetic way of writing about her experience as a Mexican-American in this country growing up in Chicago. And A House of My Own is a recollection of her experiences as a writer, but also as a daughter of immigrant parents growing up in Chicago. And it speaks so much to my experience as well and the richness of that experience of coming from an background or being an immigrant yourself and but also being a woman in in a very sexist world <laughs> yeah highly recommended very inspiring okay final question who should we interview next who you should interview next i have so many suggestions for you but i will say that the the person that I will suggest you interviewing, her name is Grace Martinez Rosas. She is one of the leaders at United We Dream who has just played such a big leadership role and in defending our community, but also in this moment under this administration, thinking about all the strategies of protecting DACA and the litigation and the movement and the organizing. And she has a powerful experience of coming out as a queer woman through our organizing work that I think that allows for that transformation and that safe space and that courageous space to come out. And I think that it will be a wonderful addition to your conversation. Wonderful. So it's really funny because I this week's episode, is we interviewed Marcus G. Miller, who is a math, mathematician, musician, just an amazing ex-guest, but he's been writing extensively around his point of view and perspective. He's very eloquent on the whole COVID-19, the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement and how it's been politicized. But he mentioned in his interviews just how the powerful influence of queer women of color being driving forward positive change. So I think it's ironic, it's you know, timely, but it's interesting that he actually mentioned that and you mentioned her who we interview next. So I think it's great. Uh, yes, I agree on, on all of it and very excited to hear. Okay, then Bettina will follow up um, with an email for maybe an, an introduction. Okay, just wrap up and just thank you. And we always do a little acknowledgement. Books come across in this interview that uh, is your obviously your profound sense of justice, but reflecting on the impact of your father and your mother, clearly you've got this deep empathy for people, but also immense sense of courage, which I'm sure has come from your father and a resilience and a, and a perseverance to have gone through the trials and tribulations and the, and the barriers you've come up against along the way to stuck with it and shown that vitality and vision to lead your organization. Uh, it's just immen immensely um, inspiring. So we, yeah, thank you for your time. 
Thank you both. Yeah, really appreciate it for the space and yeah, look forward to being in touch. Okay. Christina, thank you very much. Thank you both. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.